even in peacetime prior to this invasion, 75 to 80% of people in Russia get their information exclusively from television. And that is basically about the number of people that are supportive of Vladimir Putin. So all the people that supported this in the first place get all their information from television, right? And the dissidents and the people who are questioning things, they, they still have access to the internet. But in terms of radio, television, newspapers, every single independent media outlet in Russia has been shut down. There is no independent television, there's no independent radio, there's no independent newspapers in Russia at all, not even a little bit. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Constantine Kissin. Constantine is a comedian and commentator. Since 2018, he has co-hosted Trigonometry with Francis Foster, a very popular reason-based podcast and YouTube show. He has performed his stand-up routines across the UK, including at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, and he's written for numerous publications on comedy, censorship, the culture wars, wokeness, and many other issues. Constantine is also the author of a forthcoming book called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, which is published in July. So, Constantine, there is a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about, but it would be remiss of me not to start off by asking you about Russia and Ukraine. Mm. Now, you are of Russian heritage. You are the British media's token Russian in many ways. Uh, You also have um, links with Ukraine, family links with Ukraine, and you've written and spoken about this war uh, at length over the past few weeks. So I want to start off by asking you where you think things are at. We're now more than 50 days into this conflict. It's, I think, fair to say it's not going quite how Russia wanted it to go. And Ukraine is in the ascendancy in terms of the morality of the issue, even if it might be on the back foot in certain other areas. So from your perspective, how do things currently stand in relation to that conflict? Well, it's interesting you ask me that, Brendan, because I'm just about to finish a piece for my Substack in which I compare what's happening now with the Winter War, which was, of course, the Soviet Union's invasion in 1939 of Finland. Uh, And my argument is the way things are going at the moment, at least, it's looking very likely that you're going to get something very similar. Now, to refresh people's memories, what happened in 1939 and the first two months of 1940 was the Soviet Union invaded with a huge army, expected to get the entire country under its control within two weeks. In fact, Soviet soldiers were warned not to accidentally cross into Sweden, which of course is on the other side of Finland. So uh, their expectations were that this would, would go extremely quickly and that the plan was this wasn't the the stated plan but we know from many documents now the state the plan was to make finland the 16th republic of the soviet union in other words to annex it completely uh, and return it by the way this is where the parallels are even stronger of course finland was part of the russian empire until the empire collapsed and those territories were then lost and it was only when stalin managed to get full control of the country back that he started to look to expand outwards and to reconquer parts of the country that had been lost as a result of the collapse of the empire so the, the parallels are very strong what happened well what happened was within 3 months the soviet union lost 120 to 160000 men and 
annexed a small part of Finland called Karelia, uh, which it retains, Russia retains to this day, uh, instead of annexing the whole country. So basically, it was a, a large attempted invasion which stalled, failed. Uh, the Russians were able to make some progress, the Soviets. My great-grandfather fought in that war on the Russian side, as it happens. Um, they were able to make some small progress, annex a piece of territory, and because of the ability to sell almost anything as a victory back home, because of total control over the media, what happened was this, you know, trading 160,000 men for a small piece of Finland was sold domestically as a big win. And mm -hmm. I think based on what's happening at the moment, now, of course, it depends on how the, the, the conflict goes exactly. I think that is likely to be where this is going as well. I think what's happening in the east of Ukraine right now uh, is probably going to result in some kind of long war of attrition. And from there, it just remains to be seen what happens. Of course, there are other possibilities, Brendan. It's perfectly possible that the Ukrainians fighting as well as they are could, with Western support militarily and financially, push Russia further out of entirely of the Donbass and maybe even look at Crimea. I don't think that's likely to happen at this point, at least. Equally, uh, as unlikely, I think, is that Russia just overruns Ukrainian defenses in the east and you end up with you know half the country which is where we started this conversation 6 weeks ago 7 weeks ago uh, again i don't think the way things are now that's looking likely but it all really depends on how these next few days and weeks go that's a very useful analogy with the soviet union's failed annexation of uh, of finland and especially with regards to the ability of russia to present even a pretty clear defeat as something victorious because of its control of information, its control of the media, and its tendency to promote a very singular political uh, idea. But in relation to Ukraine, following on from that, I wonder, given how much has been invested politically and ideo ideologically by Putin in particular into the war in Ukraine, which he has presented in very existential terms, this is a battle against Nazism, against fascism. It's about denazification, although that language is slightly changing now and, and might, they might finally do away with it. But it was presented very much as a defense of Russians in the east of Ukraine from this Nazi mob, this Nazi government in Kyiv. And it seems to me that at least politically and ideologically, Putin was really upping the ante from the very beginning. How likely is it, do you think, even with his ability to control media output in Russia, how likely is it that he will be able to spin the possibility that this existential battle against Nazism will end with Russia having its tail between its legs and holding on to Crimea? How will he be able to present even something like that as, as a victory for, for Russian prestige? Well, the, the, you touch on a lot of very important points there, Brendan. I think the first one, just for, for our Western audience, perhaps I should explain the, the media situation. So when you talk about control of the media, let's quantify that. Uh, so the first thing people should know is that even in peacetime prior to this invasion, uh, 80% of people, 75 to 80% of people in Russia get their information exclusively from television. Exclusively from television right? 80%. And that is basically 
about the number of people that are supportive of Vladimir Putin, mm. uh, even if they're not necessarily supportive of this invasion, right? So all the people that supported this in the first place get all their information from television, right? And the dissidents and the people who are questioning things, they, they still have access to the internet. But in terms of radio, television, newspapers, every single independent media outlet in Russia has been shut down. There is no independent television. There's no independent radio. There's no independent newspapers in Russia at all, at all, not even a little bit, right? So the ability to sell anything as a win is is very, very strong. Now, in terms of the outcomes, uh, again, um, you've got to remember that in terms of communication, there is this thing that we sort of in the West think, well, you know, we gave this statement that this is how things are going to be, and we're going to be held against that. Uh, we're going to be held to that word, and people are going to look at, did we achieve our objectives or not? It's very different in Russia. So give you an example in 2014, when uh, Vladimir Putin uh, said, you know, those soldiers that uh, showed, showed up in Crimea that have no insignia and that are impossible mm -hmm. to identify, these are not Russian soldiers. These are not, and he denied it for several days in a row. And then, of course, later he admitted it and gave out medals. Now, imagine if <laughs> Boris Johnson had sent British troops somewhere, claimed they were not British troops, and then eventually acknowledged that they had been and gave out medals. I think there would be quite a reaction. In Russia, the reaction was, great, our commander-in-chief tricked the evil enemy into mm -hmm. allowing us a tactical advantage. So the ability to change the narrative post-factum is very much there. And so I don't think there's going to be that much of a difficulty selling, for example, let's say that the result of, the, uh, of whatever happens is, and I'm not saying this is what will happen, but let's say it is, the current territories that are controlled by the so-called two breakaway republics and Crimea are allowed, and Ukraine agrees that these are allowed to be independent. And they have some kind of another fake referendum like they had the first time, a referendum where, you know, the, the military controls the land isn't really a referendum, but they're allowed, you know, let's say something like that happens, people vote, they can sell that domestically very easily. You, you make the point about denazification. The reason they're no longer saying that is that they no longer can maintain that narrative. Because otherwise, if you genuinely believe that Ukraine is overrun by Nazis, you have to take over the whole country. Well, now that it turns out that they can't, suddenly Ukrainians aren't Nazis anymore. And this will continue to happen over time. So really, whatever the end selling thing is, whatever is being sold to the Russian people at the end will be matched very closely to what's happened on the ground. And most people in Russia won't even notice that it's happened. I, I want to ask you about your view on NATO and NATO's role over the past few years. Now, I'm one of those people, I've been very critical of NATO for a very long time including its interventions in Libya, the former Yugoslavia. And I am one of those people who does think it was problematic the way in which NATO moved ever eastwards. And I'm far from alone in thinking that. Even uh, Margaret Thatcher made similar comments after the end of the Cold War. Let's not go too far. Let's not go to Russia's borders and so on. But it struck me over the past six weeks that some people in the West, some people in international relations departments at universities and some people on, on the left too have fetishized NATO's role to such an extent that they're almost absolving Russia of responsibility for what it did. So the idea that this is NATO's fault seems to me, even to me, a NATO critic, to be preposterous and 
almost a form of victim blaming. You know, if Ukraine sides with NATO... And- if Ukraine wasn't wearing a short skirt, right. then this would never <laughs> happen. Right. So uh, on that question, on that issue, I wanted to know what you think of, of, of NATO moving eastward. Do you, do, you, do you have thoughts on that? And then that broader question of how this infantilizes Russia and victim blames Ukraine, why has that become part of the discussion in the West in particular? I have a very long and complicated answer to your question, Brendan, which I fear may <laughs> may be too long and too complicated. But I acknowledge that Russia is unhappy at NATO's expansion eastwards. Uh, and not only do I acknowledge this, my father used to be a junior minister in Boris Yeltsin's government in the 90s, whose job it was to deal with the countries of the former Soviet Union. So I'm well aware of the way that Russians perceive this, right? And you've got to understand, in Russia, Western expansion isn't perceived as a sort of minor inconvenience. The West is the enemy, right? So the enemy, quote unquote, is getting closer to our borders. So that is a legitimate argument for Russia to be concerned. Of course it is. But I think some of the narratives that have emerged since, particularly people like John Mearsheimer and others who are pushing some of these narratives beyond where they credibly could go. And the reason I say this, for example, one of the big narratives is there was what happened was Russia and Ukraine were living peacefully and happily together since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then what happened is the evil American capitalist pig dogs came along <laughs> and they uh, caused a coup in 2014 in Ukraine, after which the country turned in a westward direction. Uh, and now this is what Russia has been concerned about. Th- this is completely untrue. So I, I give this example often because it's helpful. Uh, do you know what they call double glazing in Ukraine in the <laughs> first years after the collapse of the Soviet Union? They call it Euro windows. Do you know what they call like the types of pristine lawns that we have in the UK, in Ukraine? Euro lawns, right? After the collapse of the Soviet Union, one of the things that started happening, particularly among younger cohorts in Ukraine, is there was a big shift towards everything that was new and good and Mm. perceived as being new and good was considered to be coming from the West. My grandfather, who was a Russian speaker all his life in southern Ukraine, uh, the moment the Soviet Union collapsed, the first thing he started doing is speaking Ukrainian. My aunt, who is his daughter, uh, she is a Russian-speaking Ukrainian. And uh, I've, I always apologize to her, not that she listens to any of my interviews, but for saying this, she's, she speaks terrible Ukrainian, <laughs> but she does anyway because many people felt, even Russian speakers and ethnic Russians, that now that we are Ukraine, we're an independent country, we've got to forge our own identity. So since 1991, the country has been moving ever more in terms of people's minds and mindsets, ever more in the Western direction. And so the reason that that what happened in 2014 happened was that people got fed up of Ukraine being prevented from choosing its own direction, right? Uh, Now, did the West want Ukraine to move in a more westward direction? Well, the West wants every country in the world to move in in a more westward direction. That is, of course, undeniable. But it wasn't a Western coup. I know many, many of the people who were involved in the street protests. And what happened was uh, Ukraine wanted to sign an agreement that would take it in a more westward direction. The Ukrainian president, who was basically a Russian puppet, uh, prevented that from happening. And, and having promised to go with that agreement, tried to sign another one with Russia, People came out into the street, students came out into the street, they were brutally assaulted, beaten up, and then there was a public uprising at that treatment, 
right? So the country was always moving in a westward direction. It was always moving in a more Ukrainian direction as opposed to trying to stick with Russia. So from that perspective, I just think this was always inevitable in some ways. This is, I always, I haven't actually done this, but I'm curious. Most people in the West don't know this, but the the first line of the Ukrainian national anthem is Shenyev Merlo Ukraina, which means if it's translated literally, it means Ukraine isn't dead yet. And if you translate it more accurately, it will be Ukraine lives on or Ukraine mm. survives. And that's because this is a piece of land that is on the border. That's what the name of the country means, Ukraine on the border, right? This is a piece of land that has always been between two big warring empires of one kind or another, whether that was the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russian Empire, whether that was Hitler's Germany, whether that was uh, the, the kingdom of the great Duchy of Lithuania, whatever. It's always been at the intersection of two warring empires and probably even two civilizations, the sort of descendants of Western Roman civilization and Eastern Roman civilization. So in many ways, these conflicts are always inevitable. It happens, happens in Ukraine about once every century. So I just think the, the reality is Russia is always going to want to push West and the West is always going to want to push East. And, and that is the struggle of, of civilizations. The problem we have is we have seen in the last two months that there are some people in the world who still cling to the old way of doing things. Hmm. And whereas many of these conflicts in, have in the last 70 years been played out economically, diplomatically, in terms of espionage, etc., there are still people in the world who believe that if you've lost all of those, then the way to deal with it is through brute force. And I think that's what you're seeing now. Keeping on the topic of how I don't want to be too Western centric, that's the worst thing you can be these days, uh, but just on how we are talking about all of this, we as in the West. And one thing that I have found mind blowingly frustrating over the past few weeks is the way in which often the kind of people who would consider themselves to be on our side, so they would be critical of wokeness, they would be in favor of freedom of speech, they might be. I don't know, critical of the European Union, all those kinds of uh, th things that they might share in common with people like me. Um, I have found myself at loggerheads with them in relation to the Ukraine question, because it seems as though their open-mindedness has become a, a kind of almost a conspiratorial way of seeing the world. It's not even, it's not really critical thinking, it's cynical thinking, which disbelieves yes. everything. And, and so, the, the narrative that we are being given on Ukraine, uh, and I'm sure there are aspects of that narrative that we would be perfectly at liberty to, to criticize and to talk about, but they see all of it as concocted. This is a distraction. People are taking attention away from the Pfizer documents. If I hear one more thing about those Pfizer documents, or this is just another way to galvanize the dumb public now that COVID is fading away. What do you make of that kind of discussion, and and how have you dealt with it if you've if you've come across it? Yeah, I, I probably haven't dealt with it as well as I wish, <laughs> uh, because uh, this is obviously an issue. I was going to say in which I'm emotionally invested, and of course I am, because I have family in Russia and Ukraine, and and millions of people in both countries are suffering and will continue to suffer. So it is something that I care deeply about. But mainly, I've struggled to deal with it because I felt like people with whom I naturally would, as you say, have some 
areas of consensus and agreement have gone so far off the deep end, I don't even know how to have a conversation with yeah. them. That's the difficulty I found. And so probably in the last few weeks, I've you might even say alienated a portion of of my audience, quote unquote. It's not something I've ever particularly cared about. You know, I just tried to say what I think and, and whoever likes or dislikes that, they're the audience, right? But but yeah, I probably have got into a fight or two with people because of it, because I just I think you're right. We've got to a point where it's cynical thinking and I don't even necessarily always blame those people, although, of course, personal agency is utmost. And at the end of the day, we are all responsible for the things we say and do. But as you know, I've documented over time, and I'm sure you have as well, the the level of media misrepresentation uh, mm-hmm. and the, the outright lies we have seen over the last six years now, particularly. It, it, it was happening before, but not on quite the same scale. Uh, and so I don't really blame people for looking at the, uh, a mainstream media which lied to them about Brexit, which lied to them about Trump, which lied to them about COVID, which lied to them about vaccines, which lied to them about almost everything. At least that's how they would experience it. Now that same media is unanimously in favor of certain things on Ukraine. And they're going, well, they've lied to me about all those other things. How can I really trust this? My difficulty with that is I know this situation from the inside. So when you had people running around saying Ukraine is overrun by Nazis, I was like, I, I'm a Jewish Russian guy who goes to Ukraine <laughs> three times a year. And every bloody time I get on the plane, do you know who it is? It's me and 299 Orthodox Jews who are on a pilgrimage to Uman in Ukraine, <laughs> right? In full garb. So if this was a country overrun by Nazis, I don't know how far they'd make it. So this is where the difficulties come in for me is where people who maybe don't know enough about this just regurgitating certain things. Uh, And because of that, I've had, and you know, Brendan, uh, not to to suck up to you, but I'll I'll say this for our listeners because I do actually think it's important. I've challenged quite a lot of people on the things they've said about Russia and Ukraine, publicly and privately. And you wrote an article about Russophobia and I sent you a message on WhatsApp sort of, you know, teasing you about it and going, <laughs> you know, maybe you're, you're going, I think I might've said you're sounding like Diane Abbott or something yeah. slightly jokey, but, but could have been perceived as insulting. You're the only person who's taken that well. Everybody else clings mm. to the narrative and is unable to hear any disagreement. And that has been quite extraordinary to me. Uh, so kudos to you for that. But yes, it's, it's, extraordinary what's happened. And look, some people's brains have been broken by the last six years. And I think locking people in their homes for two years or close to two years hasn't helped. I think the collapse of the the credibility and trust in the mainstream media is obviously a big factor here. And I think we're all struggling to find the answer to this question, Brendan. How do you, you know, people are like, well, we need to rebuild trust in the mainstream media. It's like, well, no, no, no. They need to become trustworthy first. Yeah. Then we can rebuild trust. So I don't really have any answers beyond what I'm trying to do, which is to give people what I think is a factual and accurate perspective. I've spent a lot of time monitoring what the Russian media are saying, what is coming out of Russia. And one of the things that's really bothered me, particularly in the last few weeks, has been not so much in the last few weeks, but in the first few weeks of the conflict, when people were scrapping around and looking for the right narrative to latch themselves onto was how predictable it was. I'd watch something on Russian propaganda TV, and then a week later, I would start to see that popping up on Twitter from the people who don't themselves watch Russia TV, but those ideas are somehow being laundered through and are popping up a week later in, in Western discourse. So yeah, it's it's a big, big problem that's been caused by media 
uh, lies and deceit and misrepresentation. And, you know, we're going to have to, as a society, we're going to have to come come to some kind of way of dealing with that. And I've got absolutely no idea how to do that. Yeah, I've, I've had a similar experience of, of having run-ins, even with people I know very well and people I've been friends with for a long time because of the things I've said about this conflict. And the things I've said about this conflict, in my view, and, and which Spike has, has said too, are very straightforward. We think Russia's invasion is an abomination. We think Russia is entirely responsible for this war. It decided to invade. It wasn't forced to invade by NATO or anyone else. And we want Ukraine to win. I, I also think that the some of the realism wing of international relations and media coverage is often cowardice disguised as realism because they're often actually saying the best thing would be if Ukraine surrendered and gave up a part of its territory and uh, stopped this ridiculous fight and brought the war to an end. Now, we all want the war to come to an end, but if it comes to an end on Russia's terms, that's a problem for the people of Ukraine and it's potentially a problem for people across Europe as well. So I've had loads of flack on what I consider to be a pretty straightforward principled stance on this conflict. But I wanted to ask you, following on from what you've just said, which I thought was very convincing. In relation to the people who are buying into Russian propaganda, so these are the kind of people who will say, you're an idiot if you believe what's in the Western media, but by the way, we believe everything Putin says about fascist Ukraine. The irony is 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 absurd. But what's very striking is that there's a unity between the extreme left, or how, however we mm-hmm. want to refer to them, and elements of the populist right. It's, there's, a, mm-hmm. there's been a coming together, certainly online, of those two forces who are often at loggerheads. And both sides will now talk about the Nazis in Ukraine and the Nazi battalions and the far-right oligarchical governments and, and so on. Why do you think there's been that coming together? Does that actually reveal a far deeper problem here? Why do you think there has been that unity of outlook between those different sections? I think they are coming together on this issue for different reasons. Uh, my working theory, I'm not claiming this is the truth, but this is how I see it, uh, is that, look, the far left hates the West and always have. Mm. And so they perceive any enemy of the West as a friend to them. They have always got into bed with foreign dictators. I mean, George Galloway is a good example of this. Right. Uh, And so they will continue to do this. And to them, this is the perfect opportunity. Right. Finally, someone is coming. And by the way, uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, is openly saying now that the point of what they're doing in Ukraine is to push America out of Europe, is to push America uh, out of this idea of American domination, is to end American dominance around the world, which sits very nicely with the views of the far left and the West, as you well know, right? The West, you know, the West is the evil Satan who is oppressing everybody everywhere. And it is our job on the far left to prevent that from happening. So that's why I think the far left is taking this position. On the right, I think there is a few different things going on. The first one we've already talked about, which is there's a portion of the populist right who are so disillusioned with the mainstream media that they now believe that the best thing to do is to believe Russian mainstream media because Western mainstream media is so uh, so evil and, and, and deceitful. And it, as I've talked about earlier, it has been deceitful. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that necessarily means you have to believe Russian propaganda. And then also, particularly from America, Brendan, I think most of this is actually coming from America. If you look at the recent polling, it's only really 
out of the Western countries, only really in America where there's any sort of genuinely significant portion of the population who believe that this is the West's fault or anything mm. like that. In Britain, those numbers are actually very small. And I think in America, there's a long running and perfectly respectable, by the way, isolationist uh, position. Mm -hmm. which is the United States should not get involved in foreign wars. It should not interfere in things that are none of its concern. And by the way, on the vast majority of foreign conflicts in which the West has embroiled itself in, the, in my lifetime, I am completely on board with that position, right? The idea that America needs to go and invade Iraq or Afghanistan or any of those other countries is at best questionable. At, at the very best, certainly Iraq was, I mean, Iraq was just an abomination, as you say, about what's happening in Ukraine. Afghanistan, there could be a bit more of a debate against Syria, Libya, the, the fact that we're helping with what's happening in Yemen. I mean, we, we could go on, we could go on for, for, for hours. I don't support any of that, but this is completely different, right? This, this is a totally different situation. Uh, and perhaps I should probably very briefly explain why, because otherwise people just hear it and go, well, how is it different? It's not. The, the main reason it's different is, first of all, Russia and Ukraine are responsible for over 20% of all wheat that is exported in the world. Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus are, are responsible for a huge percentage of all fertilizer that is produced and exported in the world. Russia and Ukraine produce all sorts of other essential raw materials that we consume in the West and around the world. So for those economic reasons, this is a conflict with, with huge impact, unlike any other. Uh, it also is a conflict with huge impact because you're dealing with a nuclear superpower. Right. And the nuclear superpower that has explicitly said under Vladimir Putin for years and years and years, their objective is to denatify Eastern Europe. That means Poland, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and on and on and on and on, come out of NATO and go back to where they were prior to 1991, which is puppet states of the Russian regime. Right. So that is very different to a civil war in Syria, and that is very different to a completely unnecessary and unjustified invasion of Iraq. However, if your broad worldview is you are an isolationist who believes in keeping America out of foreign wars, well, this is just another thing that's come along, and now you're being asked to get embroiled in yet another thing, and you don't know much about it. You could be 20 years old, born after 9-11. You could be 25 years old, have no memory of 9-11. You certainly don't remember the Soviet Union. You certainly don't remember the propaganda that was coming out of the Soviet Union, uh, as you and I do well. Mm. And so all of this is a new thing, and you're coming at it from a perspective of, as we just talked about, everything you're being told is untrue. And now on YouTube, as we've seen over the last six years, there's some genuine actual information that here's a guy giving you a lecture about why this is all your fault. And that appeals. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree, by the way, on, on those other interventions. And I've always been an anti-imperialist since I was 18 years old. I've opposed all of those wars, you, you, all those interventions that you mentioned, including the Afghanistan one, which I think just became so disastrous so quickly. Mm. And, and that's one of the reasons why I oppose what Russia is doing to Ukraine. And to me, it's pretty uncomplicated. The reason I'm an anti-imperialist is because I believe 
in people's right to national self-determination. I believe in people's right to national freedom and that people within a given territory should have the democratic authority to determine their own affairs without the interference of external actors or external military powers. And I support that as much for the people of Yemen as I do for the people of Ukraine. But although, as you say, there are huge differences here as well because of the global implications and the implications mm. for Europe most immediately. What, one thing I find quite striking is that some of the critics of the pro-Ukraine line that is, is pretty widespread in the West, that they will say things like, well, what about Yemen? Did you know that tens of thousands of people have died? And I think, yes, I did know that because we've been <laughs> writing about it on Spiked, whereas you people have never mentioned it before over the past seven years. So mm. that kind of thing I find quite uh, amusing too. Brendan, if I can just jump in very quickly, the one other point I wanted to make about the sort of isolationist right is, as I said, I think it's a perfectly respectable position. But I think the reason it's not being articulated in that way is that in our modern society, it's become sort of uncouth and impolite to say, I don't care people are being killed and raped and whatever, massacred. You know, we should stay out of all foreign wars. That is no longer acceptable to say in polite society. So you have to make up stuff about Nazis and biolabs and whatever other nonsense that's being peddled at the moment. That's just one point. But I just wish my only request of those people, many of whom I'd normally be in alignment with on certain issues, is, guys, you have a perfectly reasonable position. Just be honest and say you don't want America involved. And I think it's fundamentally wrong. And I think for America to pull out from, from Europe, which is essentially what that would mean, would be a disaster for America, first of all, and the rest of the world. But if we can have that disagreement on a legitimate basis, sign me up. I'm down to have that conversation. Just don't make me talk about Nazis for the hundredth time because it's just nonsense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And And Ukraine is asking for arms. It's asking for military equipment. It's asking for military support for for its war of resistance and i think it's perfectly legitimate for a state to ask for those things and it's perfectly legitimate for its allies to send those things so so i i see that as a some of those arguments that are coming from the anti-ukraine side we could say or certainly a, a, an accidentally pro-russian side i see those arguments mm. as problematic um i want to ask you about on this distrust in the media issue which i think you put very well it's 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 understandable that people feel distrustful because the media has not been upfront with us on many issues for quite a long time. And it's been promoting scare stories on everything from Brexit through to COVID-19. And it's used the politics of fear as much, if not more, than the government ha has to try to keep people in line and try to cajole us into a certain way of thinking and behaving. So I think the media has certainly played a key role in, in those areas. But I want to ask you how how do you think we address this problem of the media being untrustworthy, but the distrust in the media sometimes being a problem? So it's a kind of, it's a very diff difficult balancing act, I think, because mm -hmm. it's, I, I guess it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So if you disbelieve everything that the media says, then you are going to quite naturally get dragged down a conspiratorial rabbit hole because everything you see, you will think that's a lie and you will set out to demonstrate why it's a lie. So when the media says that the COVID vaccines are safe, which they are, you know, of course there are side effects and of course there have been certain issues as there are with all medications, 
then what you have is the kind of people who criticized lockdown, and I think they were right to criticize aspects of the lockdown, then saying, well, the media is saying that these uh, medical interventions are safe. They mustn't be. And now you have the same thing in relation to Ukraine and Russia. So this is a difficult moment, isn't it, for people like you and me, because we understand why people don't trust the media. We don't think the media deserves to be trusted right now. But there's a problem when your approach to political life is instantaneous distrust. Brendan, I think what you've put your finger on is probably one of the biggest problems that is facing the world right now. And I think the consequences of what is happening to our brains as a result of the last six years are going to run for decades. How that gets resolved, I have no idea. My only hope is that, you know, we know the pendulum swings and eventually it swings back. Uh, I would certainly say for myself that I probably at the peak of lockdown and vaccine craziness where I was not someone who thought the vaccine is super dangerous or whatever, but I also didn't think that people my age and my health status should be forced to have it. I didn't think that, you know, mandating it for NHS staff was a reasonable thing to do. And, and it does become quite difficult when there are certain things that you perhaps oppose vehemently. And there's also other things that are sort of part of that package, but maybe you kind of like don't mind or agree with, and it all gets blended into one. And suddenly you kind of feel like you have to oppose all of it. And I think I probably would have flirted with that, you know, towards the end of last year. And I'm glad that I had a a bit of a wake up call, I suppose, by actually getting COVID and getting it pretty badly and going, look, it's still pretty safe for someone my age and my health to not be vaccinated. And that's fine. And people should have always the freedom to decide mm -hmm. what they put in their body and what they don't. And I do think some of the arguments the government made about how important the vaccine was for the safety of others were oversold. And I think some of the measures in terms of taking away people's liberties were excessive. And I protested against them and would do so again. But at the same time, I also think it's important to for all of us to just go do I really know what I'm talking about? Mm. And that was a bit of a wake-up call for me because I went, well, look, it's true. I, I did not have serious COVID as in I didn't have to go and stay in hospital. But it also wasn't, you know, I was out of action for three weeks and I'm a young, relatively healthy guy. So that was a useful wake-up call. And of course, Ukraine now, I'm just lucky in that this happens to be something that I know from the inside. Right, because otherwise, who knows? Maybe I would have been one of these anti-Ukrainian people selling some kind of special narrative. So, I think we're all gradually over time going to get wake-up calls of one kind or another, which will hopefully reorientate those of us who are able to still be sensible back towards that kind of: Do I know about this, or am I just being oppositional for the sake of being oppositional here? So that's on an individual level. I would say, look around and go like. Is it just one conspiracy you now believe, or do you believe all of them? Because if you believe all of them, you've probably gone a bit too far. So that's the individual level. Structurally, how this gets solved, Brendan, that is a trillion-dollar question. Social media is going to be a huge part of it. Mainstream media, look, what the mainstream media have to do, and this is easier said than done, is they've got to get back to honest reporting. Right. They got to start treating people of all races, all sexes, all orientations as the same. They've got to stop uh, blaming white people for things that happened 400 years ago and attempting to pin the blame for that onto people who are born now. Uh, they've got to ha have a reasonable 
uh, approach to people from different sides of the political spectrum. And when someone is on the right, they should be treated just the same as they are on the left. Uh, you know, men and women should be treated equal. All of these things need to be brought back into some kind of semblance of sanity. That is how you begin to recapture, uh, I think, people's trust. But it's going to be a hell of a long process. And whoever, by the way, cracks that technical problem is going to be a trillionaire. So I hope there's a, a young kid somewhere watching uh, who's going to build the next platform that's going to help us all have uh, conversations without what we've got now, which is not really conversation. It's, you know, I have a belief and here's a bunch of information I can pretend confirms that belief. And that's all I need to ever listen to. Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. I think that question, do I know what I'm talking about? That is a very good way to approach all issues. And if you don't know what you're talking about, then it's good to find out. And and I think that that kind of investigation and critical thinking should always be encouraged. On that issue of of getting back to common sense and being sensible again, and and uh, how to restore that in public life, I want to ask you because uh, obviously you've been talking about this on trigonometry for the past four or five years. You've been writing about it as well. The I guess the madnesses of our times, we could call them. The woke ideology, which is a completely inept term, I know, but, you know, political correctness, What I don't know what we're supposed to call it, but this culture in which, as you've just hinted at there, people are blamed for the crimes of history, uh, racial thinking has be, been reintroduced into public life via critical race theory and other ways of thinking, We've got the the transgender ideology, which is separate from transgender people, most of whom just want a normal life. But the kind of trans ideology and this notion that you can change sex just by declaring it. All these various things that you and I and others have been talking about. How do you think the battle against the excesses of that is going at the moment? Because my feeling is that it's sometimes like one step forward, two steps back, because you have these small victories and Boris Johnson temporarily comes to his sense on the trans issue, but it still goes on and on and on, especially in educational institutions, in large parts of the mainstream media, in social media. How do you see the war for common sense going at the moment? It's interesting. I think I would say it's two steps forward, two steps back in that uh, I don't feel that the way I felt three years ago, for example, where I felt that it was a losing battle and we were basically struggling to keep our heads above water in, in getting recognition for what we're talking about, I think. Mm. Now we've got to a point where I think simultaneously there's a lot of good that's happening uh, from our perspective. And I also think we're starting to get to a point, which I always said we would get to, Brendan, from the very beginning. I, the moment I became aware of, and I'm glad you made the distinction between transgender people and the trans ideology, because uh, I think you know it's easy to lose sight of that fact sometimes when we're having this conversation. I've interviewed probably as many trans people as anyone else uh, in the last four years on trigonometry. Uh, and so I, I, I know that these people exist. I know that there are many people who for whom it's a genuine 
concern that they are expressing and they're living their lives as as they wouldn't even say as the opposite sex they're living their lives by dressing and behaving as the, as as the opposite gender to which they are and for all intents and purposes not causing any problems to anyone including themselves but at the same time i've always said that given what we're now particularly the mainstream uh, public are finding out about some of the things that had been happening in the name of this ideology I always said the trans thing would be what would break intersectionality and what would break wokeness. And when you start to see the wave of detransitioners, these are people who started to transition because they were pushed down a pathway by their parents, by their schools, by their doctors, and are now regretting it. And you see more and more of these people popping up now. Uh, when you see some of the, we had a whistleblower from the Tavistock Clinic talking about some of the things that were happening there. When you see some of the over, overtly sexualized education, particularly in America, uh, the, that's been happening with children in schools. Uh, we just had the story about this uh, sex show, the theater in Bristol, which just been canceled. Like, and you're going, these are these people are teaching five and seven year olds about clitorises. What? You know, so I think as that begins to leak out into the minds of, you know, your ordinary person who's too busy to pay attention to the culture wars, the pushback against that will be very severe. And that's actually a bit of a concern for me because I think it's really important that in addressing the excesses, we don't end up in a position where people are like, oh, that LGBTQI plus thing, that's just all rubbish and it must all be destroyed, right? Because I think some of the hard-won rights for for sexual minorities and for people who are just different in, in one way or another are really important to preserve in this conversation, even as we acknowledge just some of the awful excesses of, of, of some of the things that have been happening. So I think uh, what we're starting to see is the voices of people like us are becoming heard more broadly. And at the same time, they are being heard more broadly because we're now seeing some of the real world impact of the ways of thinking that had been advanced. And give you one final example. If you look at something like Black Lives Matter, you'll recall only two years ago, it was a huge movement around the country. And now we know it's a it's an organization that's hugely discredited in terms of how it's dealt with the money that it's raised. And more importantly, much more importantly, Brendan, look at the cities where this moronic notion of defunding the police was actually advocated for and put in place. What happened? Well, guess what, Brendan? If it turns out, if you take police out of cities that many of which are majority black, um, the, it's black people who suffer from the lack of policing and from the spike in crime. So you're starting to see that this sort of make-believe world in which they've wanted us to live for a very long time is starting to crumble and ordinary people are starting to notice it. Now, I do think think that's a positive in some ways. It's obviously a negative that people are being murdered and killed and children are transitioning and then having to detransition as a result. But uh, I just, I didn't see it going any other way. This madness had to get far enough for people to start saying no. Are they now starting just to say no? I think a little bit they are. Yeah. I think that that's a very good point about how one of the problems with this new ideology, whatever its name is, is is precisely that while it presents itself as a pro-minority movement defending LGBTQ rights and uh, black people and, and so on, actually it undercuts the great gains that have been made in those areas over the past 60, 70 years in terms of what it does to young gay people who are very often encouraged to transition into being the correct gender or its reintroduction of racial thinking, the impact, as you've just described, that it has on minority communities in terms of policing and social peace. So one of the arguments I've always made is that if you believe in 
progressive politics, which is not necessarily a, a useful word anymore, then it's precisely for that reason that it's worth arguing against these new uh, pseudo-progressive ideologies. But I just to bring it to an end, my final question, I want to try and tie these different things together, because I think one of the things that links together what we started off talking about, which was the way in which certain people are mistrusting everything about Ukraine and what we've ended up talking about, which is how we're faring in the battle against wokeness. I think one thing that ties this stuff together is anti-Westernism. So mm -hmm. this idea that anything the West gets involved in in relation to Ukraine will will is wrong and disastrous and shouldn't happen. The West is always the problem. And then, of course, in relation to the woke ideologies over here, it's very much Western history is one crime after another. Western societies tend to be racist hellholes. So there's an anti-Westernism. And the reason, the reason I want to ask you about this to close, I don't expect you to go into much detail on this right now because I want to have you back on this podcast when this happens. But you have a book coming out called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, which I believe is out in July. And I do want to discuss that in more depth with you once it's published. But give us a taste of what people can expect from that book, why you felt the need to to write a love, a love letter to the West, which is not something many people do these days. Well, Brendan, my argument is very simple. We live in the most prosperous, the most safe, the most uh, equal, the most full of opportunity societies in the history of humanity. Uh, and maybe just for a moment, we should stop and appreciate that. It's really as simple as that. Uh, I look forward to coming back and talking about it in more detail, but my, my fundamental sense as someone who comes from outside, who's lived in many countries uh, that are not as developed, as successful, as free, as democratic, etc., as the one that you and I have the privilege of living in, is that we uh, fundamentally underappreciate the huge opportunities and the benefits that we enjoy by virtue of being born or having the opportunity to live in Western societies. Uh, we are, in comparison to almost every other part of the world, free of, relatively free of violence, of tyranny, of uh, the, the sort of desperate vicissitudes of life that make people's lives completely outside of their control almost everywhere else in the world. We have a measure of control of our own futures, of our destinies. This is one of the few places in the world where if you work hard, if you're bright, if you're talented, if you're creative, you will be a success. Even if you started out with, with a bad lot in life, you can still make it. That isn't the case in most places. Uh, in most places, if you're, if you start out being poor and lacking friends and connections with powerful people, you will never get beyond that. Uh, we're not like that here. And so I think the, the, if, if I had to sum up my book in a word, it would be gratitude. I think we should be incredibly grateful. I also, you know, uh, can't resist poking the hornet's nest, uh, as, as I always do by talking about things like slavery and putting it into context. Are we uniquely evil? Uh, in the West by having uh, participated in slavery? Well, let's look at the facts. Let's look at what was happening in Russia at the time, something about which I can speak with a little bit of authority. Let's look at what was happening in the trans-Saharan slave trade, which took more black slaves out of Africa than the transatlantic slave trade. It lasted longer and the death rate was higher. Right. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about everything is best understood in context, as we say in Russian. And the context is that we're not uniquely evil. Uh, we are just like every other group of people in the history of humanity. We have our flaws. We have our strengths, but through 
our history. We have built some of the best societies to live in the world. Let's enjoy it. Let's appreciate it. And let's stop tearing them down. Constantine, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.